Hello, and welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Hicks. He is a professor of philosophy at University of Rockford, Illinois. And I am so excited to have this conversation because I am seeing this conversation go on currently, and I've talked quite a bit about this, but people seem to be arguing that classical liberalism is the problem and uh, that it all stems from the Enlightenment. And I keep asking, which Enlightenment? And, uh, you know, there were quite a few Enlightenment figures and there were several different schools of thought from different countries. So I still haven't gotten an answer to that. Um, however, my concern is really that I feel that there seems to be what looks like a possible op going on and it's subversive intended to, or at least the result would be to put the constitution in jeopardy. And uh, that is concerning to me. So I thought we would flesh out some of these concepts, some of the philosophical origins and uh, yeah, see where this goes. So I'm excited to, to have this conversation. Uh, how are you doing today, Dr. Hicks? Well, thanks for the invitation, Courtney. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, yeah so I don't know if you've By the been... way, it's certainly timely. Right? I, I feel like it is really timely. Mm. Um, I keep saying I'm feeling like there's a kind of a second wave uh, of a Enlightenment versus counter-Enlightenment movement, like another iteration of, uh, you know, to... I, and my concern is that this time it'll be kind of a, a very romantic, like the romantic era that came after, but it'll be under the umbrella of all of this social conservative uh, type of uh, fronts. Mm. And that will very much appeal. You'll have a kind of a very nice dialectic where, you know, the left has been trying to subvert the constitution for probably since it was drafted. <laughs> um, and now it looks like they have this angle to work through the quote unquote, right. I put it in quotes because I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, that that's kind of a dialectic that has been, mm. you know, cr created um, large, but the people who align on the right and the people who, you know, they, they identify that way. It now looks like you haven't seen too much of an attempt to subvert on the right, except for maybe I, I think the convention of States idea uh, not not to say that there is no merit to it, but I, I think that it would end up in a terrible disaster. Mm -hmm. And I but I see I see that come up every every now and then, but it doesn't get too much traction. Whereas this I'm seeing getting a lot of traction and it's very concerning to me. So that's kind of the the background for why I thought this was an important conversation. <laughs> right. No, very, yeah, very good uh, yeah, preamble. Uh, yeah, the the uh, Enlightenment is uh, still vigorous and still strong and uh, intellectually and culturally, but it has faced uh, formidable adversaries uh, broadly, what as you're calling the counter-Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So all of the major things intellectually and institutionally the Enlightenment stands for, the reason, scientific method, technology, kind of a progressive uh, understanding of human uh, potentiality individual freedom in the economic sphere, democratic, republican politics, and a kind of a, an optimism about the future. All of that, as the Enlightenment uh, 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 project, has been under assault by its intellectual enemies. And sometimes the enemies are just per, uh, against particular elements of that package, but often it's a more wholesale rejection of the Enlightenment. I think also, as you were saying partway through your remark, it's not only uh, that uh, the left, mm -hmm. strong segments of the left that have been opposed to the Enlightenment 
we are starting to see in the last 10 to 15 years significant elements of the right and you're right to put those in uh, in quotation marks uh, that have uh, uh, more explicitly uh, seen themselves as subverting the enlightenment you know that uh, uh, at least of the political document the constitution is a is a sham or it needs to be subverted or replaced and or sometimes that it's the philosophical thinking behind the constitution that needs to be rejected and so the big name enlightenment philosophers john locke and others uh, uh, come under attack so i like to think of it uh, if you if, in terms of political slash cultural war yeah. that we're going on right now there is kind of a, a modern enlightenment liberal using that not necessarily in the in the uh the, the, the American journalistic sense, but genuinely concerned with liberties of yes. the individual, that classical form of liberalism, that still is a robust enterprise in our culture. But there is a, the more postmodern left that attacks mm -hmm. it explicitly, and now a, a kind of conservative right mm -hmm. that also is attacking it. So it really is a three-way triangulation that's going on. Yeah, that, that's very well said. That That's exactly what I'm seeing. Um, and I do find it very concerning because I feel like it puts individual liberty in, in jeopardy. And it's also very deceptive because I think that people get very caught up in the labels without really understanding what does it mean to be a conservative, a Republican, a Democrat, a yeah. liberal, when there's classical liberalism, there's post-liberalism, there's you know, yeah. there's a, yeah, there's all the, of these, all of the these, leftist terms. yeah, they are so abstract and general mm -hmm. and contentious that they, they, uh, they, they evolve in, uh, across the years. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, people are playing rhetorical games. Yes. And so, you know, who gets to define what terms, uh, is part of the rhetorical battle that feeds into the political battle. So it's always important to strive for the conceptual clarity and say, when I mean liberal, I mean actual people who are in favor of liberty, right? right. Or if I'm a conservative, here are the core values that I want to conserve right. to get back to the uh, the root origins of the, of the term. So, but you mentioned, yes, individual liberty, and that mm -hmm. is the, or the social and the political rubber meeting the road. Yes. Uh, uh, but what those require philosophically is that you believe in individuals. Right. And, and, and what both the postmodern left and segments of the right uh, quite explicitly will say is we don't believe in individuals. They, uh, they will sub subordinate individuals either in terms of their agency. You know, they'll say we are born in a certain cultural context and shaped by that cultural context. So you really are more of a vehicle for that cultural context and not uh, an autonomous individual. Right? Or they will subvert the individual at the value level and say, well, you know, this whole idea of that, you know, you have the right to your life and to do what you want with your life and pursuit of happiness. That's, that's too selfish. That's too individualistic. And you should see yourself as a, as a servant, you know, you, you're here to serve something or rather beyond yourself. And so when you play that out, you subordinate the individual in various ways and the left and the right both do it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And then of course, uh, the other side of that is liberty. You know, if you were going to 
have individual liberty. You have to believe in liberty and you have to have a good justification for liberty. And again, both the right that you are concerned about and the left that you're concerned about will explicitly attack the idea that we have any sort of liberty or agency uh, or that it is desirable to let people be free. Maybe we can't trust individuals because they're too sinful. And so they need constraints and they need fetters rather than freedom, right? Or they just aren't uh, free agents in the first place that we're all just constructed by various group memberships. And so it's just a, it's a non-starter philosophically. So yes, the philosophical territory is, uh, is deepened and uh, it's gaining traction from both directions right now. Yeah, for sure. So when, so I guess maybe it would be helpful to people if we kind of tease out some of this. So yeah. when they say the enlightenment, what does that mean? And what versus the counter enlightenment? And why would they say that the problem of classical liberalism be, st stems from the enlightenment? Yeah, that's so, a lot right there. But so, you can oh take yeah, it no, no, that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely important. I think, uh, you know, with your concern about the Constitution and the American yeah. context, you know, the United States was explicitly seen as the nation of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And that it was a, a product of the 1700s or the, the 18th century and all of the philosophical ideas about what's real, about what knowledge is, about what it is to be a human being, mm -hmm. about what the important values are in life, and then creating a political system. And in a way, the Americans were lucky that they could start a brand new country at mm -hmm. this time of the Enlightenment, create a political system that would enable individuals to live what was thought to be the best philosophical life. Now, to tease out some of that, uh, that philosophy, there's a number of philosophers that the names are worth mentioning here. Yeah. So John Locke, Francis Bacon, mm -hmm. Isaac Newton, Adam Smith, uh, Voltaire, and others. So all of these are brilliant thinkers of the late 1600s and on into the 1700s. Now, to put some philosophical labels to it, what the Enlightenment uh, starts off by doing is saying that we have been able to figure out some things that human beings have not been able to figure out for a while, that we have been, so to speak, in darkness, we have been in superstition, mm -hmm. and we have uh, kept ourselves, so to speak, in superstition and ignorance because of the belief systems that we have acquired. So all of them uh, started uh, by saying, we need to affirm the importance of the natural world. Right? It's not that we're going to deny necessarily that there is a God or right. a supernatural dimension, but what we are not going to do is to say that Everything is all about the supernatural. The natural world doesn't matter. It's low. It's physical. Uh, don't worry about your body. Only attend to your soul and hope for an afterlife. And God is a big mystery and nobody knows how anything goes. And you just kind of hope for miracles. So that way of thinking about the world, the Enlightenment said, no, we're going to take the natural world seriously. Mm -hmm. And we can figure it out. We can study it with our senses. Conceptualize, we can do reasoning and logic and mathematics. And we started to develop all of this in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. So, out of that, of course, we start to see the development of the sciences. We started mm -hmm. to see the developments of technology as people start to say, well, 
you know, the, the way the world works isn't just magical and mysterious. It's uh, it works a certain way. And so I should be able to take things apart and put things together in different ways to make things better. So mm -hmm. all the inventiveness and, uh, and, and engineering starts to take place. But then also people are uh, emboldened by this idea that we can think for ourselves. Mm -hmm. it's important that we think for ourselves. Ah, there we have some of the, the great heroes, mm -hmm. Air Locke, Benjamin Franklin, uh, uh, right? Uh, heroes of the uh, of the Enlightenment, uh, and uh, yeah, people should learn how to read and mm -hmm. uh, think for themselves. And everybody should get an education, uh, including girls, at the uh, for the first time in history, systematically. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, once people start to get an education, then they want to read all sorts of things, and then. We have different interpretations, so we start to argue mm -hmm. with each other about everything, but that means we get smarter and better at argumentation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so there's this upward spiral of we're taking the natural world seriously. We can do uh, uh, um, uh, science. We can do technology. Mm -hmm. Everybody can become literate. And then the idea that people can start to become self-governing because if people are smart, and educated enough, they can take charge of their own lives. Right. They don't need someone to tell them what to do in their lives. And so the idea of political authority and religious authority starts to get attacked. Who are you to tell me what I should believe, right? Uh, right. You know, if you give me a good argument, I will change my mind, but I'm going to think for myself. So there was a decline of you know the king knows best or your feudal lord knows best or mm -hmm. That your priest knows best, uh, and, and all of that then gets uh, uh, leveled, so to speak, to the average person should be put in charge of their own life. And so mm -hmm. I will become a self-governing person economically. And then you start to see the beginnings of free markets. You know, I should be able to own my own land, start my own business, manage my own money, decide whom I'm going to trade with. Uh, to the extent that women then started also in the 1700s, asserting themselves more, being educated. Yeah, well, maybe women should be able to, uh, you know, handle their own money and uh, and, and get an education and uh, and, uh, and so forth, and maybe even get the vote. So you start to see mm -hmm. the beginnings of of, uh, of modern feminism. And what about slaves? Uh, right? Nobody really had a problem with slavery prior to the 1600s and the 1700s. Well, they're human beings. And right. human beings, you know, have the potential for rationality and becoming self-governing. So the idea that all human beings should have this basic self-governance starts to percolate rather into the culture. And we start to see the beginnings of anti-slavery movements in the 1700s. Mm -hmm. So all of this, if you start to put it together, we have you know, the rise of reasoning, the rise of individual thinking, the development of the sciences, of technology, of the idea of people being free agents in their economic life. And so the beginnings of free market capitalism, the idea that women and even slaves should have equal liberties with men, all of that comes together in the 1700s. And mm. the idea was that finally we figured out kind of a philosophical framework. We don't have to be ignorant and poor and superstitious and hating each other for religious issues and ethnic issues and so forth. We are reasonable beings and we should be able to enter into peaceful international relations and so on. So all of that is the enlightenment and it comes to maturity by the middle part of the 1700s.
So where it becomes important in the American context is all of these ideas were developed in Europe, mm -hmm. first in England, a little bit later in Scotland, across the channel to France, a little bit into Germany, some places in Western Europe, uh, significantly in, uh, in Holland as well. And so uh, there is a strong enlightenment culture in Western Europe, particularly Northwestern Europe, but it comes over uh, in strong force to the United, uh, was not yet the United States, to the colonies. And it becomes, so to speak, the, the working furniture, uh, intellectual furniture and cultural furniture. So you had a picture uh, up just a few minutes ago of John Locke, who's probably the most significant philosopher. And, uh, you know, the number of reprintings of John Locke's works that uh, happened not only in England and more broadly the United Kingdom, but in the United States. So that uh, it kind of became a badge of honor that, of course, everyone would own a copy of the Bible, but you would also mm -hmm. have copies of John Locke's works, his political works, his philosophical works, mm -hmm. his works on religious toleration and how properly to educate your children. So it was a very Lockean enlightened culture. And so individuals like Benjamin Franklin and uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams and all of the founding fathers, but then hundreds of other people. Uh, were educated in this Enlightenment philosophy in the United States is largely then a product of that. Yeah. So then where does the counter-Enlightenment come into play? So well, that, the counter, I, yeah, the, yeah, the counter-Enlightenment, yeah, it's another circle. Because right from the beginning, everything mm -hmm. about the Enlightenment is controversial. Mm -hmm. I mean, counter-Enlightenment comes uh, at the Enlightenment from, from two directions. One is people who are traditional who are conservatives of the era right. because what they will be right from the beginning is saying, well, wait a minute, uh, if you're going to start with nature, mm -hmm. uh, what about God? What about the idea that we're going to take the existence of God as an axiom? I'm going to uh, explain everything, taking that as an unquestioned axiom. Mm -hmm. Now the enlightenment philosophers will say, well, you know, maybe there is a God, probably there is a God. This is before, evolutionary theory and there are some mm -hmm. agnostics and atheists who are starting to kick around but they will say uh, uh, uh if we are going to believe in a god it's not just going to be as an article of faith mm -hmm. or as just as an article of tradition we are now rational modern people we mm -hmm. should be able to prove the existence mm -hmm. of god and uh, we will believe in the existence of god to the extent that it is provable Mm -hmm. And that becomes an important move. But then people who are traditional in their religion, that makes them very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because many of the traditions want to say you should not be questioning higher authority. And to the extent that you start questioning higher authority, there's a possibility that you will come to disbelieve. Maybe you'll think the arguments don't really work that well. And you'll mm -hmm. become an agnostic or or even worse, an atheist. And uh, if you become that, then the whole the, the whole traditional shebang. So from the beginning, the idea was controversial philosophically about whether we should start from nature and maybe work our way up to the believing in the existence of a supernatural, or if we should start from the supernatural and only explain everything as derivative from the supernatural. Mm -hmm. But then also this issue of reason and rationality. Do we really want to say that people are rational and we want everybody to think for himself and then increasingly for herself. Because when you look at a lot of people, they're kind of stupid. Yeah. Right? And, and uh, these issues are really hard. 
And if we just tell everybody to think of for themselves, people are going to start believing all sorts of weird things. <laughs> and uh, society is going to be arguing with it all of, uh, amongst themselves all the time. We'll have social discord. So isn't it better if we have one uniform, basic religious philosophy that everybody mm -hmm. agrees upon? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to tell people that you have to do all this philosophy and theology and all of this hard work and figure out stuff for yourself. It's going to make things a whole lot easier for most people who really aren't up to it, we think. And also mm -hmm. it's going to mean social, uh, social, social harmony. But also there was another big issue. If you start saying, well, from the traditionalist perspective, it's not only that you're starting from nature mm -hmm. and not starting from God, that you're starting from reason and possibly challenging faith. But you're being very individualistic. You're telling people uh, uh, you can be free and do whatever you want in your life and pursue your pursue your happiness. You're telling women this and you're telling the slaves and maybe the slaves will get uppity and the women are going to start getting uppity. And you're starting to talk about a social revolution and people won't know their place. They won't know their duties. Uh, they will start to think that they get to make up their own moral rules instead of following these absolute moral rules that have been laid down since the beginning of time. And that's also going to cause social discord. So there was immediately very strong pushback from what we would now just think of as traditional conservatives mm -hmm. uh, against every element of the, of the Enlightenment. Uh, and of course, the, the ones who were most politically connected to the feudal hierarchy, to the religious hierarchies, they were the ones who were the most anti-enlightenment right from, from the beginning. Now, that sort of anti-enlightenment or counter-enlightenment mm -hmm. uh, becomes more vigorous, and it, uh, its fortunes wax and wane over the course of the next two centuries. But it's that tradition that we're starting to see its, uh, reassert itself in some forms of conservatism now, where they mm -hmm. will go back and say, well, if you're an enlightenment person, then that means you believe in reason and that criticizes faith. Or mm -hmm. that means you're an atheist. And if you're an atheist, there's no way you can be moral. And if you're not moral, then we're just going to have anarchy and the whole shebang is going to going to fall apart. So you see those arguments still with us uh, 250 years later. Now, it's also the case, though, that there was another anti-enlightenment that was not traditionalist, was not conservative. And it wasn't uh, even religious in the old-fashioned sense, but it was opposed to the direction that it saw the Enlightenment as going. And so it is modern in many respects, but it wants to take modernity in a very different way from the pro-reason, pro-individual, mm -hmm. pro-liberalism, mm -hmm. Enlightenment direction. And here probably the most important name uh, is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. Another uh, uh, French speaking, he was born in Switzerland, born in Geneva, but he spent much of his career in, uh, in, uh, in France. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was uh, modern enough to say that we can't, now that we're into the modern world, um, the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. So by the time we get to the middle part of the 1700s, there's no way we're going to go back to old fashioned feudalism. Mm -hmm. There's too much exploration, there's too much science, there's too much new art, there's too much people thinking they can do whatever they want with their life. Uh, and people are much more educated now. You know, we have the mass production of books and newspapers mm -hmm. and there's coffeehouse culture and everybody's talking to everybody and mm -hmm. doing business all over the place. But 
from this perspective, uh, the rationality uh, and reason emphasis of the Enlightenment is seen as a threat. And from this perspective, the idea is that this is going to make human beings cold and uh, logical and mm. not human. It turn us into, uh, this is a bit anachronistic, turn us into robots, so to speak. Mm. But what it is to be a human being is to be passionate, to mm -hmm. be emotional, and that, that uh, prior to reason is our animal and passional nature. And the mm -hmm. reason is this overlay that tends to suppress, try to suppress our, our natural instincts and to suppress our emotionalism and uh, cut us off from all of the things that are going to make life enjoyable and, and life meaningful. The criticism also was that reason is very individualistic, right? It's, you, know, you have your mind, your brain, and the emphasis of the uh, Enlightenment was that you need to think for yourself on all of these important issues and make up your own mind and tolerate that uh, people are going to have differences with you and go their, go their separate ways. Uh, uh, whereas uh, the idea here is that if we do that, people will lead themselves in different directions in life and we will stop being social. Mm. So it will turn us into islands unto ourselves where I'm just off doing my own thing and you're off doing your own thing and we can't agree with each other. And so our natural socialness and sociability will mm -hmm. go away and rather than you know staying with our families staying with our tribe staying with our nation and subordinating our individual judgments for the good of the tribe for the good of the nation all of that will go away so in the case of rousseau we have this idea that we are naturally communal or much naturally much more collective mm -hmm. and we're naturally much more emotionalist and passional rather than rational and individualistic. So coming out of that, then you have the idea that, well, we're not going to go back to kings and queens and popes and all of that stuff, right? We have to go somewhere in the modern, but what we want to do is find a new kind of communalism mm -hmm. or a new kind of tribalism where people see themselves as part of that community, part of that communalism, and there's a governmental structure that makes everybody stay together. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are um, um, uh, uh, subordinating their individuality for the good of that community and working for the good of that community. Now, in the case of Rousseau, uh, he also then believed that uh, since we are in the modern world and people have become more rational and individualistic, the state is going to have to have a lot more power than the classical liberals want because too many people are going to want to go their own way and not follow what is good for the community as a whole. So he becomes a kind of authoritarian uh, communalist. He also believes uh, on the basis of his feelings and his passions that uh, there is some sort of God and that religion is important for the maintenance of the community. Mm -hmm. So he's very much opposed to this idea of thinking too hard about religious issues because he thinks mm -hmm. that leads people to be skeptical and atheistic. Yeah. And he's also then very opposed to the idea of the separation of church and state. Right? And uh, so in the American context where you, mm -hmm. you know, the First Amendment, first clause, freedom mm -hmm. of religion to do your own thing, 
He believes yeah. there needs to be a single religion that all of the community buys into and that the state should be in charge of that religion and making sure that everybody is on board with that one religion. Now, it's not necessarily going to be old-fashioned Christianity or old-fashioned Judaism or anything like that. He does want to uh, modify it and modernize the religion uh, uh, to some extent, but nonetheless, it's going to be an integration of church and state managed by the government to keep everybody's passions or organized in the right direction for the common good. And so this is very much anti-enlightenment, right? But it's not traditional conservatism. Mm -hmm. And this is another movement that has now for over 200 years also had strong currency in the, uh, uh, in, in the Western uh, cultural dynamic. I would also want to say it's that that more Rousseauian version that I've just outlined now that I think is supplanting to a significant extent Marxism. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked yet about Marxism, <laughs> uh, but Marxism, there's another story that needs to be told there. That's also of the left. It's also part of the modern, uh, uh, modern project, but uh, uh, it's run into troubles in various ways and significant numbers of people on the left are kind of breaking away from that form of left anti-enlightenment politics and moving in a more Rousseau kind of direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. One of the things, yeah, <laughs> uh, that I was thinking when you were talking about the the nature versus, uh, you know, more abstract supernatural, and uh, that seems to be kind of the age-old debate. That that was kind of the uh, Plato Aristotle. Oh, yeah. uh, Right, dichotomy as well. And I, this is a total tangent, but I'm seeing a lot of this too, where it's a, again, every, everything just becomes politicized. So the, again, the quote unquote right worships Aristotle. I mean, there's always outliers, but this is kind of the narrative that I think we're being mm. sold. And uh, Aristotle is like the, uh, you know, the, the, he's the great figure, uh, you know, that uh, the idol, if you will, for the right. And uh, Plato is uh, supposedly the father of the left and the father of communism and that we should uh, demonize him. But I mean, when you look at it, there's, I think is a lot more nuanced than that, you know? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. I think yeah, Plato can take a, a right or a left form. Aristotle also can take a right or a, or a left form. Uh, yeah. Well, and in terms of what you're talking about with when nature, you politicize it, as you started yeah. to say, yeah. But oh, you're right that there is uh, the first part of what you were saying there is that you know Aristotle is much more of a nature science friendly philosophy, and Plato is much that. more of a higher reality supernatural forms yeah. uh, uh, friendly philosophy. Um, and it is one of the amazing things about the Greeks. I know we don't want to talk about the Greeks, yeah. though, is that <laughs> all of these very <laughs> sophisticated for another time. But yeah, yeah all these very sophisticated philosophical alternatives and dozens of subschools were developed by them. And in many uh, respects, we are recapitulating that in the uh, in the modern world. Yeah, I feel like we very much are. We maybe maybe in a future time we could revisit that because I think that that's another conversation that is very much resurfacing today. <laughs> I'm very much seeing that. So, where does classical liberalism arise as a result of all of this? Because that's very much it seems like comes out of the Enlightenment, but that's very yeah, much a target yeah. right now. Well, we call it classical liberalism now, just because you know liberalism has mm -hmm. uh, several centuries behind it and it's evolved in various forms. 
And in the modern uh, world, the different countries around the world. So uh, it's taken different forms uh, in, in, in Europe, in post-communist Eastern Europe, uh, in Britain, where it began in the United States, Canada, Australia, and so on. So there are uh, the contemporary liberalisms uh, that have evolved away in many respects from classical liberalism. So starting in the 20th century, we had to start adding adjectives to mm -hmm. parse out all of the different types of, of, uh, of liberalism. And the same thing has happened, of course, with uh, uh, conservatism. So we'll talk about religious conservatism and traditional conservatism and neoconservatism and paleoconservatism and so on. So yeah. all of those adjectives start doing a, a lot of work when you start with a kind of a generic uh, big tent and you want to then talk about all of the substrands that are that are in the tent. But yes, yeah. what we now call classical liberalism is definitely a product of the Enlightenment. And so the idea there was politically, if you are going to do two things, so it will say the United States, for example, is a democratic republic. So mm -hmm. it's basically a republic, but it has a strong set of modifications built into it that are democratic. Mm -hmm. uh, and both of those require a certain understanding of the human condition. So the Republican side wants to do two things. It will say, for example, that we should have a constitution. And in the constitution, we are enumerating rights that individuals have mm -hmm. and powers that governments have. Mm -hmm. And we're defining these very carefully and in nuance and, uh, and so on. So all of that means a very rational, logical uh, mindset that we are, mm -hmm. we are doing. It's not just traditions that have come down to us from the ages and we don't know where they begin, but we accept them because there are traditions and we are defining rights and powers in the constitution. And that's a very modern way to think about doing doing politics. But yeah. what's also built into those, if you take the rights, the rights are rights of individuals. You have an absolute or an inalienable right to your life. It is yours. You have a right to your liberty, to your property. And we have to define all of the different kinds of property and where the yours begin and ends and where mine begins and ends and so forth. And the pursuit of your happiness. So all of this is a very individualistic project which is to say philosophically, you take individuals very seriously. Uh, you know, they have these fundamental natural rights. And you might, of course, tie that into religion and say that it's because you know, every soul is sacred. Uh, mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you're, you're, uh, you're building in a strong respect for, for the individual and that these rights can be defined. At the same time, on the Republican side, you're saying power is dangerous. Uh, power is necessary to get certain things done. But we have learned from history. We've studied history as a big scientific laboratory of all of these kinds of uh, ways human beings can live. Some of them work, some of them don't work. Mm -hmm. And we are going to then divvy up the powers and put them in tension with each other, kind of like a machine, mm -hmm. uh, uh, an engineering project. And again, right. this is a very modern way right, of thinking about politics. So that stuff gets done. Uh, good stuff gets done, but also not too much bad stuff also doesn't get done. And all of that's on the Republican side. But that then requires that you're taking individuals very seriously. And you have a kind of scientific and technological understanding of how you're going to do politics. And that's very enlightenment. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that's part of the classical liberal project. Now, on the democratic side, the idea uh, that we're going to not have a monarchy, basically one guy making all mm -hmm. the decisions, having all the power, or having an aristocracy where we say there's some people who are smarter, more moral, better than others, and they get to make all of the decisions and the, you know, the great unwashed masses just follow along. The idea of a democracy is everybody is participating in the process and we expect and encourage everyone to participate in the process. And we are going to give everybody political power to make decision, having some decision-making power about all of these really complicated political things, foreign policy, et cetera, <laughs> require a huge amount of knowledge, a huge amount of thinking, in many cases, very nuanced thing. Now, why would you do that mm -hmm. unless you think people are pretty smart, people in <laughs> principle are pretty competent, they mm -hmm. can think about things, they can learn and they can have discussions with their friends, with their family at work, and uh, and they can read books and make up their best judgment. And we're going to then have everybody participate in the process. And we're going to think most of the time, the majority will get it right. That requires a great respect for the individual and for the individual's capacity for reasoning. And then also there's a, an element there that says, okay, we won't get it right all of the time. We will make mistakes, but it will be like an experiment. And democracy is a kind of ongoing experiment. Yeah. So we will elect these guys. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we will say, what was I thinking? <laughs> and you know, this guy is a disaster. But we will then four years later say, let's try again. We will vote. We will learn from our mistakes and mm -hmm. vote those guys out and try somebody else the next time. Or we will try a certain law and see how it works out. And we will test it in the courts. We will test it in reality. We will evaluate the results. And most people can do this. And then we will have then this ongoing self-correcting political process that's very analogous to an ongoing scientific experiment. Mm -hmm. Again, respect for the individual, respect for reason. So both on the democracy side and on the Republican side, mm -hmm. this is very much an enlightenment way of doing uh, of doing politics. So this is liberalism. Individuals should be free to think, free to experiment, free to uh, run their own lives as they see fit uh, in all areas, scientific, religious, business, whom they're going to marry, and so mm -hmm. forth. We will have a free society of rational, self-governing individuals. That's the classical liberal package. Right, right. So I, I guess but before we get into a little bit of a kind of bring it to today and how this all feeds into what's going on right now, uh, some of the, I kind of put them in the counter enlightenment category, but I haven't heard you mention would be, uh, and then the other component too, which is related to these people, uh, would be the secret society element. But I'm thinking of people like uh, Kant and Hegel, uh, um, right? I, I would classify them kind of in a more counter enlightenment, but they were. Uh, of the similar time period. Yes, uh, Kant, yeah, Kant more controversially. Uh, mm -hmm. I categorize him fundamentally as counter-enlightenment. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, uh, yeah. People give me a lot of grief for that. And so there's a lively argument that, uh, that needs to be made there. And it's an argument that should be mm -hmm. made. At the same time, there are some classical liberal elements in, in Kant. On, 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 on my view, it's his more fundamental underlying philosophy that subverts everything everything mm -hmm. else yes 
Uh, Hegel, though, more, more clearly and obviously is a, a counter-enlightenment figure. He is yeah. an absolutist in his, in his politics. Uh, he believes that uh, history is God's plan working its way out in the world, except God is in an act of self-discovery as he's kind of working his way out in the world. Uh, uh, and so you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a modernized religious view mm-hmm. that God is going to come to a kind of complete self-realization when history uh, ends, but that along the way, God uses great figures like mm-hmm. uh, Alexander the Great and Julius mm-hmm. Caesar and Napoleon Bonaparte. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, these guys are terrible dictators and tyrants, and they're killing thousands and thousands of people. But that's okay, Hegel says, because they're doing God's work and they are bringing civilization to the next stage of development. And the fact that, you know, tens of thousands or even millions of innocent people get slaughtered. Hegel has this slaughter bench of history phrase. And he says, that's fine, right? So there's no... no, Just break a few uh, eggs and make an omelet kind of theory, yeah. yeah, yeah, That's right. But on on steroids, even though Hegel didn't have steroids. at the, right. at the time. Uh, and so, yes, all of the strongly nationalistic and collectivist authoritarian movements that are yeah. going to rise up in the 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, uh, most particularly in Germany, and then, uh, but certainly in, uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of that is coming out of Hegel, obviously, uh, Kant, less obviously but i will mm-hmm. i will still make that argument yeah. i think it's not an accident that in the next generation you have karl marx yeah who is another person who says what are you talking about freedom and uh, liberties and individuals and capitalism and so on we need to uh, smash the whole system and through violent revolution have a dictatorship of the proletariat mm-hmm. another very violent anti uh, uh, enlightenment philosophy another German thinker. And then in the next generation, Friedrich Nietzsche, another explicitly power politics. And then, you know, the the overmen can do basically what they want in order to create the great new vision in uh, in the future. Now, this is all just a very potted history. And we're talking about a whole century. But Kant died in 1804. Then Hegel in the early part of the 1800s, another German thinker. Marx in the middle part of the 1800s, another German thinker, Nietzsche at the end of the 1800s, another German thinker. And these are the best philosophers mm-hmm. in the world. I put Heidegger in there too. Well, Heidegger is going to be in the next, uh, in, in the next century, but yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Heidegger in the, in the next century. Yeah. And all of them are anti-liberal, uh, uh, again, with some caveats with respect to, to Kant. But Hegel, very authoritarian, anti-liberal. Marx, violent revolution, anti-liberal. Nietzsche goes out of his way to tell you how anti-liberal he is. And then Heidegger just hates liberalism in all forms. And it's almost like the the perfect uh, moral of this story is that uh, Heidegger not only was a brilliant philosopher, but he actually joined the Nazi party. He was a card-carrying national socialist and he saw himself as drawing together the best in german philosophy as it had been developed over the previous century and that national socialism was it 
and it is going to save the world against all of the decadent Americans, the decadent British, the place where classical liberalism was uh, was still widely respected. So, um, yeah, so yeah, we are covering a lot of territory here, but yes, the Enlightenment was controversial. It required a certain philosophy to get off the ground and to come into existence. But there was a strong uh, anti-Enlightenment set of philosophical uh, viewpoints on all of the major issues in philosophy that were developed over the course of the 1800s. And they became increasingly well defended and more powerful as we got into the, the 20th century. Now, in part, then we can say this is, you know, partly why we have the lineup of nations that we do mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to war in the in the uh, the uh, in the twentieth century. I don't think it's accidental that in World War One, it's the British and the French and the Canadians and the Americans and the Australians and the New Zealanders, and they're allied with each other because they are all classically liberal nations, mm-hmm. and they are against the Germans and the Turks who are mm-hmm. at that point authoritarian and imperialistic in a in a in a in an overt fashion uh and in world war 2 it's you know, the germans and now the italians who've gone fascist yeah. and then they are uh, initially allied with the soviet union for the first uh, two and a half years of the war so all of these collectivistic anti-liberal authoritarian societies against again the British, the French, the Canadians, the Americans, the Australians, New Zealanders. I should emphasize India also as, uh, as still part of the, the British colonial uh, enterprise. Yeah. Uh, so you got these guys all lined up, and you know they're they're fighting war because they're committed to very different cultures, very different ideologies, and that's the philosophy having it worked its way out to the political level. Yeah. No. Oh, absolutely. So if we were to bring today uh, the other element that I I was putting under that umbrella with the counter enlightenment, I do think this is where some of this, this might bring us up to, I I know it's a big span, but, but bring us up to today. Um, Yeah. The secret society, because that's what I hear a lot, you know, like even people like Ben Franklin, well, he was a Mason, of course, you know, so that, and we could go through the list, but that's often when I hear, I hear people even, criticizing the constitution and using that as their justification. Well, you know, it was born out of the enlightenment. It was a, you know, they were all a bunch of Freemasons and Mm. that's their uh, critique, which I mean, obviously I, well, personally, I think it's very flawed because it's a, it has no nuance. It's kind of like a broad brush stroke. Mm -hmm. Well, this is why you should just overturn a whole system. And then what are you going to overturn it to? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I, I hear different arguments on, again, the proverbial left and right. Uh, but, you know, they have different approaches to how they will address it. But either one doesn't seem to have much clarity around it. Uh, you know, yeah. on the left, it seems to be just this, uh, you know, perennial revolution. <laughs> and uh, on the right, with without any real solution, and on the right, I, what I'm hearing currently seems to veer towards more of like a theocratic type of solution mm-hmm. uh you know maybe a, a, a some of the terms might be like a christian nationalist type of a state yep. but even then it's like which christian I, i'm still confused like who <laughs> they can't seem to decide amongst themselves like you know what the you know uh 
core presuppositions are and the, the theological uh, premises. So how are they going to decide? Oh, no, in, a, in a short form, that makes sense. You know, the, the, <laughs> the left that's most prominent right now, the postmodern left, it does not offer positive solutions. You know, mm -hmm. Part of their package is everything has been exploded. There are no truths. There are no you know, rights. There are no absolutes. It really just is ongoing group warfare. Yep. And we can't predict where that's going to go. And we can't certainly uphold our ideals as some sort of universal absolute ideals because we don't believe in universal absolute ideals anymore. And then uh, the right, uh, at least the kind of right that you're you're talking about, then sort of say, well, we tried the Enlightenment and it failed, right? and or we think the Enlightenment led to the postmodern nihilist left. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the only thing we can do is go back to some sort of old time religion. And then that just is to say we will go back to all of the debates over what the proper old time religion should be, uh, right. as you as you are you're alluding to. On the point about secret societies, um, yeah, I give much traction to that. You know, some of the Merida founders, of course, were members of uh, of secret societies, and there's a long history of secret societies in any culture, particularly one that is uh, at all authoritarian and repressive. People right. carve out. Uh, societies that have to go underground in order to help each other out and protect themselves in various ways. And some of those uh, carry on into the, the modern world. But I think the more striking thing about the modern world and the Enlightenment is how unsecret it was. You know, everything was public and debated in the, uh, in the British coffee houses and debated in the salons and the, uh, the French Enlightenment uh, encyclopedia project is you know, an amazing yeah ambitious effort to you know collect and have articles written in French on yeah. everything that that human beings knew and make them widely available so not only intellectuals can read them but workers can read them mm -hmm. and uh, they will then have debates about politics and religion as well as the articles will include you know, how to make an iron forge and how to make a water wheel uh, so mm -hmm. it's all of the practical and the theoretical knowledge but the expectation was you know, common working people, farmers and people who work with their hands and, and so on, they also will be getting this education and, and, and learning about everything. Yeah. And the, uh, in the American context, you know, the number of uh, uh, books that were owned and printed, and then even more so the number of pamphlets and newspapers right. that were uh, fl floating around in colonial uh, America and the regular debates in the taverns and over the dinner right. table and so forth. Yeah, uh, there was no secrecy about <laughs> right. Very little secrecy about what the new agenda was and what was uh, what was going to happen. And that, of course, is part and parcel of the the, uh, the the confidence of the movement that everybody, not only the elites, but also uh, people who are not traditionally part of the elites, can be part of the process. And uh, we we really want to have an an, an enlightened, self governing citizenry. And so that uh, that process of open discussion and and, and ongoing education, everybody was taking it seriously. I think that's a that's a really interesting point, and it's so relevant today because I think that's part of why we're seeing a resurgence of this similar uh, type of uh, debate and discussion. Because I think the internet has oh, created yeah. a lot of that that very similar what the printing press did for them. Yeah, right? that's right. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, not only the uh, the printing press, but then. By the time you get into the 1700s, it is the era of the Industrial Revolution, yep. 
which totally. means the mass production of paper. And then also you start hooking uh, engines up to the printing press. And so it's not just mm -hmm. hand pressing anymore. So cost of paper goes down, cost of, you know, so everything, uh, newspapers, books becomes very cheap. And then as you were saying right now, we've just gone through another communications revolution. Mm -hmm. Everybody, uh, uh, you know, has uh, you know, 15 opinions before breakfast on the internet. True. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're we're in the new era again. Yeah, once again. So why do people say that the in that the Enlightenment, uh, and then uh, as it's downstream from that, classical liberalism is the problem with. And now I I will just uh, you know caveat this my my own personal opinion. I think that there was an intentional effort to call the left uh, liberals. You know, that was kind of a yeah. media label. And, and I think it was. For yeah, the that was a rhetorical power play. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what it looks like. So that conflates things further for people. But right. now that kind of abets this argument that the Enlightenment and classical liberalism are the root of the problem. And yes. they're the reason we have this, as you had uh, mentioned, you know, some of this nihilistic, uh, you know, relativism and really the, just the degeneracy that we're seeing in the culture. And they blame classical liberalism and the Enlightenment for that. And mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on some of that? Well, I think it depends on who uh, you sure. have in mind. So, you know, mm -hmm. people on the left, they have their own complaints about the enlightenment and liberalism, you know, because they don't mm -hmm. believe in individuals. They don't believe in freedom. They especially hate, uh, since most of them for the 20th century have been either Marxist or strongly influenced by Marx. Sure. They take money and uh, uh, economic prospects as fundamental. So they really hate the capitalist part of, of, right. uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the enlightenment project. And so uh, then their agenda just is to say, you know, anything that goes wrong in the economy, it's always the fault of capitalism. And that's been their, their longstanding, their longstanding project. Although there's been a, an important shift on the left in terms of their criticism, because the, the, the argument for a long time was that capitalism means it's rich versus poor, and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That was mm -hmm. the standard Marxist argument. But uh, when that uh, clearly was shown not to be true. You know, that what was happening in the capitalist nations was, yes, the rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting richer too. Everybody is mm -hmm. getting richer. Then the left shifted quite consciously away from that rich get richer, poor get poorer line to the line about equality and inequality. Mm -hmm. So then the problem with capitalism was not that everybody isn't getting richer, but some people are getting really rich and other people are only getting modestly richer. So that's the yeah. new, uh, the left. And so what they then have is uh, a kind of moral standard. Everybody should be equal and everybody should be working together in some sense, even if to the extent we're postmodern, we don't think we can put that forth as an absolute, but that still is our governing ethos, so to speak. And mm -hmm. so uh, everything that they will see coming out of the Enlightenment works against that egalitarian communal vision. Mm -hmm. so this, the science means whoever's smarter uh, is going to uh, uh, start the new businesses and become richer faster than everybody else. You know, the, the trickle down won't happen for a generation or two later. And so that mm -hmm. is against inequality or that's against equality rather or all of the new technologies. You know, some people get all the new toys right away. Others have to wait 
And so that also is against any uh, uh, equality and so on. So it's just that same argument over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the more interesting one uh, mm -hmm. is the one that is and coming I'm from- I'm sorry, I just want to clarify for people. Uh, when you say equality, you mean like egalitarian, you mean uh, like ec really what they call equity now versus like an- Yeah, that's right. So, we think of equality, we think equal opportunity and that gets conflated yes. of course as well. Yeah, yeah no, I, that was all coming out of my saying. It was largely a Marxist understanding sure. of yeah. egalitarianism where everyone should be economically Sure. But yeah, that, that that verbiage shift that you just mentioned, right, away from explicitly mm -hmm. saying everybody should have an equal amount of stuff. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and then we have a debate about, well, no, no, equality of opportunity versus equal outcomes. Right. After the left lost that debate, right, then quite consciously, then they say, well, let's go for equity, mm -hmm. right, which is to steal a word that has, you know, was used in various other contexts. And so it sounds like a good word. Right, but then you just repackage the same old philosophy in uh, in in that one. So that's part of the ongoing yeah. rhetorical rhetorical battles. Uh, but I started to say um, in transition, I think the the more interesting criticisms now of classical liberalism that it's the fault that the Enlightenment is fault coming from the right. And I say that they're more interesting because they are newer in our yeah. in our intellectual landscape. Yeah. Are, versions of this, uh, um, at least two, two major versions. One is to say that <clears throat> the Enlightenment and liberalism were a mistake from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what we now see two and a half centuries later is if you take Enlightenment philosophy seriously and you change all of society's institutions over the course of many generations, mm -hmm. what you end up with is uh, you know, people who don't know if they're boys or girls, mm -hmm. right, or if two plus two equals five or four, right, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, there's your truth versus my truth. And so you end up in this kind of epistemological or cognitive nihilism. Mm -hmm. And then you also have people doing all kinds of self-destructive and other destructive things uh, mm -hmm. and all of the social pathologies. So they will argue that the Enlightenment might have sounded good on paper at the beginning, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, really it wasn't uh, because it was getting away from traditional religion and traditional ways of doing things. But now finally we are seeing two centuries later that uh, when the rubber meets the road, it's all going to be going to be going to be wrong. So from that perspective, what we need to do then mm -hmm. is say all of the philosophers of the Enlightenment were wrong. So we have to be anti John Locke and explicitly attack him anti Adam Smith anti Voltaire and so it's not just the the, uh, the 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 philosophical positions it's the advocates and you see them increasingly under under attack uh the idea here is that you are are uh, sort of an unintended consequences of the enlightenment that are mm -hmm. are, are are the problem here there is another form though of of uh, the conservatism that's coming back, which is to say that some things came out of the Enlightenment are good, and we mm -hmm. will make our peace with those. So we're not going to say, you know, we have to go back to the days when there was slavery right? mm -hmm. and, 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 and racism. Okay, that's fine. So the Enlightenment was good on, good on ending slavery and getting us past the racism. We're not going to say that women have to go back in the kitchen and just get, you know, pregnant and, and make babies all of the time and and so forth. Uh, so that's fine. The Enlightenment was okay. It was okay on that. 
but on other things, we're going to say the Enlightenment went too far, yeah, that it's too much committed to reason and there should be some element of universal faith that is maintained dogmatically. And it has to be a more or less uniform faith. So maybe we can modernize religion to get rid of the soft tolerance or explicit tolerance of slavery and the status of women. Okay, to the Enlightenment, but we're still going to hold and say there has to be a uniform religion in a society that everybody buys into, some general moral standards, because we don't think the Enlightenment can deliver on that. We think the Enlightenment means if you're rational, then you're going to uh, not be able to find moral values in the world. If you're a scientist, you know, things don't come labeled as good or bad. They just have, you know, scientific materialistic properties. Uh, so we need to have some sort of dogmatic universal religion of some sort to hold the society together. And so that I see as a more compromised integrationist version of conservatism. And that's a, I think it's a more nuanced and more interesting argument. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I guess then the the big question, at least from my perspective, my my concern is really about uh, personal sovereignty and personal liberty. You know, I think uh, one of the you know I, I have my my pin tweet is a beekeeper analogy, and I talk about how uh, the not America, like not the government, but the the people of America are like the beekeepers. You know, they say when bees go, the world seems ceases to exist. Oh, okay. And uh, so I see the people of America as uh, the the like the beekeeper because they're the ones who preserve the free will of humanity. And mm. that's not to say that there aren't great, you know, liberty and freedom advocates all over the world uh, who lead by example. Yeah, you know how you say if the bees, mm. if it, all the bees die, then humans will cease to exist. Well, mm. America is kind of like the beekeeper. If America doesn't stand for free will, humanity is done. If America goes, so the world mm. follows. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, again, this is not to say there aren't other wonderful countries and people in them. Uh, but I think that America is very unique in uh, the particularly the Bill of Rights, you know, this notion that we were endowed with inalienable rights from a creator. Mm. Um, and I, I think that that really is what kind of gives us the, or protects, you know, our individual liberties. And I feel what I'm seeing is some of these arguments attacking, you know, the, the very, uh, the groundwork and the, the philosophical uh, origins that gave rise to that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's very concerning to me because where, where do we go when, you know, I, I'm looking at what a lot of the, you know, we'll call them the globalists, the, I call them the parasite class, actually. I think they want to create like a neo-feudal system uh, mm. that's run by a, you know, corporate fascist techno uh, high Borg mind that they happen to program and then silo yeah. us all yeah. in the middle. That, that fits with some of them. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's nuances to you know sure. not everybody just like the Enlightenment they have various uh, different uh, ideas and uh, nuances among them. But I, I definitely see that agenda being put forth. You saw the UN 100 uh, document, and that that's literally called "Remaking the World: The Age of the Global Enlightenment." Um, and uh, they talk about and it's with the Boston Global Forum. Uh, Michael Dukakis wrote the book, and they're talking about putting in 2045, which would be the centennial of the UN, they're talking about creating an AI world society. So mm -hmm. this idea of it, right, they did a symposium on uh, rebuilding Ukraine, 
and making Ukraine the hub of this AI world society. And that would be connected to all these other smart cities. And um, so I bring this up, though, because I do, you know, while there may be nuanced, you know, thinkers among them, there is very much kind of this trend towards wanting to enslave humanity towards a centralized you know, and this is not new. I mean, the Fabian socialists talk about an internationalist world order. Um, and that's very much what this is, you know, working off of. And mm-hmm. I, I think that, uh, you know, they, they also want to create, they talk about wanting to create a, uh, you know, centralized world religion. And from my perspective, it looks like they're kind of creating a cyber state and that's going to be, you know, an AI God is uh, their world religion. But so all of this, that's just to give the context of where some of my concerns are, because even people who may, and I often think, you know, not everybody is coming to these uh, ideas or uh, discussions from a sinister place. You know, I think a lot of people, and even if you look back through history, I think oftentimes, you know, there's some, sometimes we see, we we learn that there were agents and uh, or people who may have had malintent, but I think oftentimes it's people just trying to figure out what is the the best way to make sense of this complicated world and how do we best navigate it? But even the people who I think think they're doing good, uh, I think are advocating for something that may really curtail uh, personal sovereignty and stifle the free will of individuals. And that to me is of concern because, you know, you, you brought up the collective, the individual and uh, and again, this is just my perspective, but I see it really as an interplay between the two that there's, you know, I don't think that we are all, that it's all supernatural, all internal or all collective, um, you know, nor do I think it's all the material, physical uh, and the the hyper uh, selfish, yeah. you know, narcissistic type of uh, type of, uh, I don't think either one. I think it's really the reality lies somewhere in the interconnectivity. You know, it's, as you said, with the the like politics, for instance, it is contingent upon the value of the individual to, in order to behoove the collective yeah. result working together. So, and that's kind of how I see it. But I see that very much in in jeopardy. So, yeah, no, I think that's uh, uh, it's all very interesting, and there are, uh, it starts to get into some of the nuances if we're trying to parse out the contemporary mm-hmm. political political movements. Perhaps a, a short way to uh, to end would be to say yeah. that always politics is about ethics or it's about yeah. values, but all of the different political approaches have one or two very top values that everything mm-hmm. else is in terms of. So as you were saying, classical liberalism takes seriously individual autonomy, that it's mm-hmm. uh, our responsibility and joy to have our own life and to put together our own lives Mm-hmm. in uh, however we want. So that individual liberty is is important. Traditionally, conservatives have had another kind of moral agenda, a, you know, a sense of uh, faith and obedience sometimes or mm-hmm. obligation and a certain uh, uh, attitude with respect to uh, sex and gender roles and, 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 and sexuality and so on. So there's a kind of moral vision that they want to protect and then they organize society and the politics around around that. Uh, The left, for the most part, has been focused on issues of money and wealth and economic matters. And so the idea that everybody should be looked after economically and then organizing all of society around that and whether that 
does damage to traditional family rules and you know sexual morality doesn't really matter to them at an individual liberty doesn't matter to them so much the fourth group you just uh, mentioned it's another certainly a modern contender that i think emphasizes more the cognitive uh, uh, elements that what they want mm -hmm. to argue is in a, in a way this is an old-fashioned view that most people are not smart enough to be mm -hmm. self-governing or they are not up to speed enough on the technology and the science now in the old days it used to be most people are not moral enough to be self-governing they're too weak and prone to sinfulness but they're also not smart enough to figure out complicated theological matters so the priestly class needs mm -hmm. to be telling them what's true and what's right and organizing society that what we are seeing is that same uh, 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 psychology applied to the modern world that most people are not smart enough to do science and technology but we in the elite right mm -hmm. we are up to speed on all of the science and the technology and we are smart enough to know what's best for everybody so right the the masses so to speak should be brought under our under our control so uh but that's a different value set that's a more paternalistic value mm -hmm. uh, set that's put to the put to the fore yeah no absolutely well i i know we're we're running up on the the time and yes. uh, is it yes. so i'll uh wrap it up i don't know if you have any any closing things you want to say maybe any suggestions i don't know how do we I mean, uh, is preserving the uh, liberties of the individual even is that important? Yeah. I, I guess it's a value to me, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say for, for classical liberals, if you think about the kind of society that matters to us, you know, we want to have mm -hmm. a free and open society, right. but we also want to have a society that uh, is, is very economically productive and great on the engineering yeah. and the science and religiously tolerant. And so there's a, you know, it's a big, huge open society that puts a lot yeah. of responsibility. It's hopefully happy responsibility on each and every one of us to do, uh, right. to do our part. But at the same time, there's a huge division of labor. So what we need is people who are not only up to speed on the general ideas about what classical liberalism means mm -hmm. and, and, and a commitment to enlightenment philosophy in general, but not everybody's going to become a, a philosopher. Right. But what we do need is people who are good at the engineering and they then are able to talk the technical arguments from a classical liberal perspective, who are good at the science, who are good at the economics. So they have their area in the overall division of labor culturally, everything that goes into making society work. I am expert at this medicine, mm -hmm. engineering, art, science, education, whatever it is. And I can uh, bring that narrow expert specialization uh, to bear integrated with my enlightenment classical liberalism. So what I would say is uh, to people, in one sense, it sounds overwhelming. It sounds like you have to know everything. Well, mm -hmm. no, uh, you do need to be generally educated. So work on that. But uh, at the same time, just whatever you are interested in, whatever you're passionate at, whatever you're good at, be really good at that. Become world class at that and then just work in that area. Yeah, well, I like that. And then again, we have the individual uh, interconnecting and uh, the interplay that's benefiting the collective. Um, I would say that education is a whole nother problem. Well, yes. But yeah, <laughs> so in terms of people being educated enough, but maybe we can uh, have more autodidacts and uh, take ownership. Yeah, that will be so. 
Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And I, right. I think this yeah, was- Yeah, we covered uh, a lot of ground, but yeah, really good questions. And uh, as, you, as you pointed out, very timely. So this is uh, in a way, ancient history, but also cutting edge journalism. Yeah, I, I do feel that way. That, that was a great way to word it, but that, that's how it feels right now. So yeah, well, thank you. And yeah, if you wanted to come back and do a conversation another time about uh, Plato and Aristotle, I think that would be, uh, I think it's also okay. very relevant. I, okay, strangely let's, enough. So. let's talk. All righty. Well, All right, bye you. for now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.